five-year-old Timmy had finally learned how to tie his own shoes. It was after weeks of practice and patience, but eventually he got it. His mother was excited about his new success and thought certainly he would be excited about it as well. However, Timmy was less excited than she thought or anticipated. So she asked him, what's wrong? I thought you'd be excited about learning how to tie your shoes. To which little Timmy replied, well, now that I can tie my own shoes, I have to do it every day for the rest of my life. At some point in a thinking person's life, they're confronted with the realities of life. The reality is that life can be monotonous. Reality is that life is brief. Reality is that life is often unsatisfying. And when you pause to think about life, you're often drawn to these kinds of conclusions, the conclusions made by the writer of Ecclesiastes, that all of it seems to be vanity. Vanity of vanities, says Solomon the preacher. All is vanity. Not just all of life is vanity, but he makes a superlative statement, vanity of vanities. We see these kinds of statements in the Bible, such as holy of holies, indicating the most holiest of places. King of kings, the king above all other kings. And here Solomon says, vanity of vanities. All of life is but vanity. What is meant by vanity? Well, our English translation uses the word vanity, the word vain, but it really doesn't communicate the appropriate idea behind the Hebrew word. We get the English word vain because in the Latin version of the Old Testament, Jerome, a translator, uses the Latin word for vain, But when you think vain, what do you think of? Somebody who is vain or something that is vain? We think of somebody that is self-centered. Somebody who is selfie-oriented. Life is about them and them alone. But that really is not the sense here. What does it mean that life is vain? Well, literally, the word means vapor or smoke, and that's why you have smoke on the screen in the background there. It's, if you take this word literally, it's like smoke from a fire. However, Solomon's not simply making the case that life is without any meaning whatsoever. He's not saying that, that life has no purpose at all, and therefore it's absolutely nothing, and he's, he's not on this total morbid kind of mindset. Because he often says things in this book like this. Look at chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes and look at verse 24. 
He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So he, he says, life is actually good. You should enjoy what your hands do and, and you should enjoy life. That's from God. He also speaks of the value of living wisely in this life. It's not simply just meaningless. There's there's wisdom in it. Look at chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. And so he's extolling the, the benefits of wisdom in life. It's not just empty. Employ wisdom as you live life. There's benefit to that. So what does he really mean by this word vanity or smoke or vapor how is life like that well metaphorically we would say this solomon is saying that life is like a frustrating enigma what is enigma it's it's a mystery trying to figure out this life is hard because it doesn't always make sense from our perspective We have a a frustrating inability to comprehend all of the activities in our earthly sphere of existence. Our, Our knowledge is limited, and we can't put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And therefore, life is often like this frustrating enigma. While there are real joys and wisdom helps, yet life is fleeting, and wisdom doesn't always work out for the best, and and joys are posed by sorrow. So the use of this word vanity in Ecclesiastes refers to the issue of our frustrating inability to figure out life this side of the sun. And the rest of the book is a demonstration of why that is true. For our attention this morning, we're going to note how Solomon opens with this poem. Verses 3 to 11 is a poem on human toil, and he's going to make the point for us that life really is a frustrating enigma, if you really stop to think about it. It begins with a question in verse 3, and then beginning in verse 4 and running all the way down to verse 11, he illustrates the answer to that question, and he tells us, why life is such a frustrating enigma under the sun. And so this morning, I've entitled the message, Time Marches On. We're going to discover how Solomon teaches us about life in this opening poem on human toil. And we'll note what we are to learn from it. And in the end, what God ultimately has to say about it. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we examine these words together. Lord, would you help us as we put our mind to your word today to know that it is true and indeed that your word knows us. And it really does answer the ultimate questions that we have about life. And so I pray today that you would help us to understand clearly what is true about you what is true about this world that you've made and how we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are to live in it. 
So we ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Solomon begins this exploration with a probing question. Look at it with me in verse 3. <clears throat> Solomon says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? How would you answer that question? What gain are you going for? I want you to note the sphere of this question, the sphere of the inquiry. He speaks of people's toil, their work, their labor, but in a specific realm under the sun or on the earth. So he says, let's just stop and let's just think a little bit about our lives from a merely earthly existence. You're in a rat race every day. You get up, you do something, you labor, you toil, you expend effort and energy and, and income. And what are you working for? And how much of that is really going to last? The sphere of the inquiry is that under the sun, in this realm in which we live of the earth, the nature of the inquiry is this. What does man gain by this? The term gain is actually a financial term. It means profit. It's like having a balance sheet, and at the end of the balance sheet, where's the surplus? So all the, the toil that I've expended today or this week or last month, what's there to show at the bottom of the ledger? What's in the black? Where's the surplus? What do we have to show for our investment under the sun that we make in this world? What will we leave behind that ultimately matters? Is there anything to gain? This is our question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I think it can be illustrated this way. You ever done this on the beach? Built a beautiful sandcastle? I never have. I was never so crafted or artistic, but I've seen it done. Life kind of seems like this sandcastle. You expend energy, you employ creativity, you use tools, you're, you're working hard to craft this beautiful sculpture that someone would actually come by and look at and admire. The problem is, what ultimately happens to all sandcastles? They get washed away. And what's left? It's like they were never there, not a trace. And this really is at the heart of Solomon's question. Think of your life like that, like that sandcastle. When, when you build it and you put in forth energy and, and you, you craft this thing, at the end of the day, what's it going to look like? Will there be any gain, anything that really lasts? We tend to think in our lives on earth, we build with granite that will remain and stay. But all you have to do is live a few years and realize that's not the case. 
life under the sun is fleeting and, and doesn't remain. So what do we gain by all of our toil under the sun? What is the supposed answer to that? Nothing. This is the premise upon which Solomon is operating when he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What what are you going to gain by all your toil under the sun? And the supposed answer is nothing. Now he's going to illustrate that in the poem that follows. And he's going to show why it is futile to put all of your stock into life under the sun. Look at what he does. He's going to illustrate from the natural world in verses 4 through 7. And then he's going to illustrate from human experience in verses 8 through 10. Here's a poetic illustration of the futility of toil under the sun. First thing he does is says, think think about the natural world and how the natural world illustrates this futility of toil. See verse 4. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes. Now, if we were to say that, how might you say that differently? We say things come and go. He says a generation goes and comes. Is that just difference between Hebrew and English? No, that's actually in the original text. That's the word order, and it's intentional. It's intentional because of this. When we say things come and go, we say we see something coming and then we see it existing and then we see it pass off the screen, the scene. He says generations are like this. You're in a generation and that generation goes. And as soon as it does, another one replaces it. And it goes. And another one replaces it. And his point is, is that life is short, but it's repetitive. What's a generation? Well, generation, he's speaking of people. We actually name generations, right? You have the boomer generation. You have generation X. You have the millennials. Now you have Gen Z. I don't know what's next. Probably another letter in the alphabet. But Solomon says, whatever generation you're in, that generation is going to pass off the scene. Another one will come and replace it. And life is just like this. Now, notice with me, he he bookends this thought. We we read of it in verse 4, a generation goes, a generation comes. Look down at verse 11. Look at how he ends this poem. He says, there is no remembrance of former things. Now, in my Bible, I have a little number next to the word things, and it directs me to the margin, and it gives me an alternate way to understand that word. Does your Bible have that? Do you see it? What's the alternate way to think of that? people. You can read it, there is no remembrance of former things, or you can say there is no remembrance of former people. Nor will there be any remembrance of latter people yet to be among those who come after them. And really I think it's more appropriately translated as people because what he's doing is he's bookending this poem. He's saying, Think about life this way. A generation goes and one comes to replace it. And he ends the whole poem this way. There is no remembrance of that former generation by the one that's coming, and that generation won't be remembered by the one that comes after it. 
And the point that he is making in all of this is simply this. Life is transient. Why does it seem that all of my toil, there's nothing to gain under the sun? It's because life is transient. One goes off the scene, another comes, and it's just like that. And we quickly forget. Let me illustrate this for you. Does anybody recognize that? That building is the building right across the parking lot. We call it the Heritage Building. It's a picture of that building. If you look in the lower right, you can hardly see it. It's on March 29th, 1915. That's over 100 years ago. What you notice about that picture is probably the Model T out front. Don't see those anymore. The Texaco pump, gas pump, I assume, maybe. You probably can't read the hot dog sign that's there on the tree. But that is this location over 100 years ago, and we recognize things in the picture. But do you see what's standing next to the gas pump? There's a man there. It's hard to see. Does anybody know the man? Do you know his name? It's not the one in the lower left of the picture. That's not his name. I don't know his name. I don't know who he is. The person in town that gave me this picture couldn't tell me who he is. He's some guy standing by a gas pump, late March, 1915. We remember the building. You've probably seen a picture of a car. But what's the important thing in the picture? It's the man, but nobody knows who he is. People go. People come. Now, his family probably knows those that knew him at that time, that, that outlived him, had that memory. But in reality, beloved, that's just a hundred years, and he's largely forgotten. From the perspective of under the sun, this is what we learn. Life is transient. It's fleeting. Will anybody remember you a hundred years from now? You say, well, that's really depressing. <laughs> it gets worse. Look at the rest of verse 4. A generation goes, a generation comes, but what? But the earth, uh, now that remains forever. Why does he say that? We are transient, <clears throat> but the earth seems to be permanent but it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? I mean, you're more important than that Model T. And yet he says, but people pass off the scene, but the mountains are still there. The rivers are still there. The landscape is still there. We should be more permanent, and the earth should be more passing, but it's not that way. 
as our world spins and the sun rises and sets in one day, the sun will do that and it'll do it again the next day and each rotation of our earth, 160,000 people die. But the earth keeps rotating, but we keep burying those people. And Solomon, as it were, is taking us by the vest and saying, listen, life is transient. It's fleeting. Most of us would like to numb ourselves with this thought. We would like to push it to the back of our mind and not think about it. And we do so by, by filling our mind with distractions and new things and novel things. And, and the world tries to push this thought out of their mind. But any thinking person sits down and when they really think about life, they think about this. It is fleeting. It is transient. The natural world illustrates how life is transient, but the natural world also illustrates this in verses 5 through 7, that life is monotonous. Look at what he goes on to say, verse 5. He's talked about the earth at the end of verse 4, and now he's going to talk about some things in the natural world. Verse 5, the sun. Verse 6, the wind. Verse 7, the streams. And notice what he says about them. He says, think about this eternal earth. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Here's what he's saying. You look at that sun and it rises here, it goes down, it sets over there, and it's like it runs really quick to get back at the head of the race, and it makes the race again. And it goes down and it runs really quick to get back to the head of the race. And he says it's this constant cycle, but the sun never seems to hit the finish line. It, it doesn't complete the race. It just races back to the front to do it again. Verse 6, he talks about wind. He says, the wind blows to the south, and then it turns around and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind in these different directions, and on its circuits, the wind returns. So the wind blows this way and that way, but the point is, the wind always is blowing, and it never gets exhausted, <laughs> right? It, it never blows itself completely out. It just changes courses and directions. And Look at verse 7. You have all these streams, rivers, and gullies, and, and creeks, and, and all of them run to the sea. But the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. And he gives these three pictures from the natural world, and he says, it's like things are happening, there's continuous motion, there's constant moving of wind and sun and water, but they never seem to get to the end. It's an endless cycle. And what he says is, isn't your life like that? constant motion, always doing, going, grasping, but you never get to the end. You never make it to the point when you live life under the sun. So 
So what do we gain by all of our toil? It's like running in circles, or worse, it's like running on a treadmill. And then notice with me verse 8, because here he gets to the point. All things are full of weariness. I like the way the New English translation translates this. It says, all this monotony, what he just talked about in the natural world, all this monotony is tiresome. When I really think about the monotony of my life, tying my shoes every day, it's tiresome. It's weary. What am I really accomplishing? And he says, a man cannot utter it, or literally, no one can bear to describe it. Faced with all this monotony of life under the sun, who can really talk about it? What's there to say? No one can bear to describe it. So you can see how he's illustrating his point. He's illustrated it through the world, the natural world, and now he's going to illustrate it through human experience. Look with me again at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What's he saying? He says, think of your life in this world under the sun in which you toil. Have you ever gotten to the point where you've said, I've seen it all? Not in the case of frustration, oh, I've seen it all, but in the case of, I don't need to see anything else because my eyes have been filled up. I'm satisfied now with the point of seeing and everything is complete. Or have you ever gotten to the point in your life where you've said, I don't need to hear anything else because I've heard it all, all of the hearing. I'm completely satisfied and filled up. This is his point. Think about your own human experience. Like like the oceans are never satisfied and filled up and it stops. Even so, this is your own human experience. You are insatiable. Life is insatiable. On this earth and the things of this earth never quite fill you up. And so what's the use of toiling hard after all of those things that will only leave you wanting? Will only leave you desiring more? Now, you would think that in all the years of human history that this has been taking place, that we could somehow find a key, something that was new, that would ultimately satisfy and and unlock the longing of our hearts and completely satisfy it and fill us up in some regard. But look at what the wisest man on earth at this time said. Look at verse 9. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. What does he mean there's nothing new under the sun? Specifically in regard to this issue of human experience and our life is insatiable. Here's what Solomon 
is not saying. He's not saying nothing new under the sun and that there's nothing novel or unfamiliar, that, that he's seen it all and knows it all. He knows even in his own time there were technological advances and things that, that had been discovered that weren't there before. And he's not saying that, that there are new technologies or new discoveries, that, that, that we've seen it all and done it all in that regard. What he's saying is this. It seems in this life under the sun, there's nothing that breaks in that is fresh and dispels the monotony. It seems when you look at human experience in this life under the sun, it just goes on and on, and it's insatiable, and people are always looking for the fresh thing that will ultimately satisfy, and they don't find it. There's nothing like that. He restates it in verse 10. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. This is it. Now, a lot of people or advertisers make that claim in this world. This is what you need. This is it. In fact, if you buy a new phone, what you need is the one that's going to come out next year. And that will be it. And what Solomon is saying is, there really has been nothing at this point in his life that has come onto the scene that really is it that satisfies. So here is the probing question of life. What do we gain by all this toil? And what are we toiling after anyway? And here's the poetic illustration that... that it's like we live in a cycle, and, and there's never an end to it. And, and it's, it's the hamster wheel, as it were. And these are questions that thinking people ask in this world. I want to give you three examples of that. There was a man by the name of Leo Tolstoy. Ever heard of him? Tolstoy was a late 19th century Russian author, kind of a philosopher. He wrote many works. One work in particular was entitled Confessions, where he's just kind of expressing what's been going on in his head and what he's been thinking about. And Tolstoy, a thinking person, unsaved man, had this to say. My question, that with at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest question. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? He goes on and says, it can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Okay, here's a well-known guy, author, writer, thinking man. Do you know what question he's asking? He's asking the question of Ecclesiastes 1.3. Why? Because that's the question all thinking people living on this earth at some point will ask. What's the use? A more modern example of this. 
just this week in some of my reading. I came across an interview with a man by the name of Jeremy Renner. He's an actor. If you watch movies, you'll know him as Hawkeye on The Avengers. Renner last year in 2023 nearly died in a snowplow accident. His body was crushed, nearly lost his life. In this interview, he had this to say. He said, I'm not afraid of death. He said, what it amounts to is that this rock that we're spinning on, referring to the earth, and this body and this language that we're speaking and all these feelings and emotions and conflict is all garbage. It's nothing. He said, and I quote, it is meaningless in the scheme of things. Here again, unbelieving man, a man who apparently has it all, right? I mean, he's, he's gained a lot. Notoriety, money, fame. He has a brush with death, and guess what he's saying? What does it profit? It's meaningless. Third contemporary illustration. I was speaking with someone who works in a work environment with other people, some who know the Lord, some who do not. This person was talking with a coworker, and they were talking about their kids. They're both similar ages in life, kind of middle age, and their kids were growing and getting to the point where they were marrying and uh, finding their careers, and then they were talking about this, and, and the unbelieving person said, you know, those were the great times of life when life was before you, and there was, everything was exciting and new, and there was so much to look forward to, and then just with kind of a smirk on the face said, but what about now? And the person said, if I could, I would go back to that, because what do I have to look forward to now? What, what is life about now? Seems like it's done. Sounds like a midlife crisis. Thinking people think about these things. Beloved, God does not want you to be left in despair this morning. If there is nothing new under the sun, then there is nothing to be gained. Is, is life just a cycle? Is it like the Lion King, right? The circle of life, that's just how it works, and things come and things go. And Beloved, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we hold to the truth that we believe in a redemptive history. That there indeed is a radically new event that changed everything. It was prophesied of in the days of Solomon, and we read about it in our Gospels. What was this new event? It was announced by Jesus himself in John chapter 8 when he told those people to who he was speaking of that you are from below 
but I am from above. I have come down from heaven beyond the sun. And Jesus entered into our life. He got on the treadmill of humanity to bring something new, something fresh. In Luke chapter 22, he says that he had established a new covenant, a new kind of promise, something that would be different from before, but something that would be primarily within. And he describes this covenant in terms that I offer you new birth. That you would understand it's not just life under the sun and that's all there is, but there's something now inside of you that wasn't there before and it's new and it longs for something beyond the sun. And through this new birth, you can be entering into a kingdom of God that will last forever. And most significantly, Jesus, the Son of God, enters into our experience to offer new life to us by his death and burial and his conquering of death and resurrection. And he says, I make all things new. This is the new I'm talking about. And because of that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Because of Jesus entering the world to bring a new humanity, to bring new birth and new covenant and new life, because this is true, Here's what we have to say about our toil under the sun. Notice 1 Corinthians 15 is a a chapter on the resurrection of Christ. It's, It's this new thing that Jesus came and brought new life to us. And in verse 19, Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. And all he's saying there is, Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11 is right. If you're looking at this life only, and that's all that there is under the sun, it's pitiful. But he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, and he talks about a resurrection that's coming. And if you are in Christ, you have been raised with him spiritually, and you will be raised with him physically someday to enter a new heaven and a new earth. But what about now? Look at verse 54. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, he's talking about when this perishable body passes and it puts on this new imperishable body and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your what? Your labor, your toil is not empty. It's not in vain. 
you who know the Lord Jesus Christ and take hope in the resurrection of new life, you know this. You're not in a cycle, beloved. You're in a race. And it began the day of your birth. And you can live your life on this earth, but you are going somewhere. And all the labor that you employ while on this earth And all the things you do for the honor and glory of God are being held in account, are being seen by God, are profitable to advance his ways, and your labor is not empty. You have purpose. You have meaning. Without God, life has no point. But knowing God... And knowing newness of life through faith in Christ brings ultimate purpose and meaning to everything. So what does that mean? You ought to give everything you've got to what God has given you to do. Give everything you've got to what God has given you to do. Whatever it is tomorrow morning, working with your mind, working with your hands, helping your neighbor, whatever it is, give everything you've got because it's not that vanity, nothing matters. It's because as a follower of Jesus, everything matters. And I work for the honor and the glory of God. Turn this world of vanity of vanities into a world of holy of holies. And I'm engaged in a holy service for my creator who gave me life and gave me new life. And I'm making an investment that is not in vain. You're not on a treadmill. You're in a race. So fear God. Fear God to turn an empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's good gifts. As you go out tomorrow, wherever it takes you, I hope that after this, you would look at tomorrow and this treadmill of life and you could at least say this, I'm going to honor God today. My labor today is for Him because it counts for eternity. See if that won't change your life. Let's bow together as we pray.